Radio in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California on KFOI in Red Bluff and Redding, KKRN in Round Mountain, and KGOE in Eureka. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ in Cottage Grove on Queso in Eugene on KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for you across the intertubes on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, amongst others. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around exhausted but swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. All right, we will get to all of that uh, Michael Cohn stuff in a bit in, in, a, in a moment here. But I want to say that I blame myself, Desi Doyen, <laughs> for the 10% drop-off in Obamacare signups this year. Oh. It's my fault. I haven't mentioned the uh, the open uh, enrollment period, I don't think, once uh, on this show during the entire period for 2019, which, by the way, ends this Saturday, December 15. One of the ironies here is that because Republicans have not been trying to overtly kill it this year, the Affordable Care Act has received a lot less coverage in the media and, yes, on this program. So, Aha! I see what you're saying there. Without that being in the media all the time, people aren't hearing that the sign-up deadline is coming up. That's it. Uh, the open enrollment is going on right now for very affordable health care coverage if you need it, including government subsidies to cover them. In, uh, in the majority of cases. And uh, yeah, w- because of the lack of controversy, people don't know that the 2019 enrollment period ends on December 15. Now, to be fair, we have been kind of busy around here <laughs> uh, with, you know, the, the still ongoing midterm elections. And we've got some news on that, too, coming up today. Some new news, but still, I I blame me for the drop-off in sign-offs. We will be joined by Politico's Alice Olstein 
to discuss the reasons for the drop-off in sign-ups, other than my lack of discussion (laughs) about it here on the show. Okay. As well as what Democrats can and or will do to try and protect the Affordable Care Act once they take control of the majority in the U.S. House after the turn of the year. Now, uh, so that's coming up. Now, as you know, I don't make predictions. They are for suckers. But I got to say, two different stories today lead me to almost say out loud that Donald Trump is now cooked. I, I, uh, but I won't say that out loud. Okay. Because I don't do predictions. But even though he sure does look cooked at this point, I got to say, one way or another, mark today down, Desi Doyen, as the day that I did not say that Donald Trump is cooked. Okay. According to AP, Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's once devoted lawyer and all-around fixer, was sentenced on Wednesday to three years in prison after telling a federal judge that his, quote, blind loyalty to Trump led him to cover up the president's, quote, dirty deeds. Standing alone at the defense table, uh, Cohen shook his head slightly and closed his eyes as the judge pronounced the sentence for crimes uh, that included lying about his boss's business dealings in Russia and funneling hush money to two women who said they had sex with Trump Payments that both Cohen and federal prosecutors said were made at Donald Trump's direction. U.S. District Judge William Pauley said Cohen deserved modest credit for his decision over the summer to admit guilt and cooperate in the federal investigation of efforts by Russians to influence the 2016 presidential election, but that Cohen's assistance, quote, does not wipe the slate clean. The judge also ordered Cohen to pay $1.39 million in restitution to forfeit another half a million dollars and to pay about $100,000 in fines. So all told, some $2 million Michael Cohen is going to have to uh, cough up at this point. And remember, this is a guy that cooperated with federal investigators. He gets three years in jail. He's got to pay $2 million. Special Counsel Robert Mueller's team said that he has been very helpful in their probe, while federal prosecutors separately in New York's Southern District said that Cohn was not fully forthcoming, and so he deserved substantial jail time. At the uh, sentencing hearing, a prosecutor in Mueller's office said that Cohn has, quote, sought to tell us the truth, and that is one of the utmost That is of the utmost value to us and has, quote, provided consistent and credible information about core Russia related issues under investigation. She did not, however, elaborate on that uh, that help that he is providing to their Russia related probe. Similarly, in a filing from Michael Flynn's lawyer, On Tuesday, the uh, former national security advisor on uh, Tuesday night as part of his sentencing, where he has pled both guilty and uh, and has also cooperated with Mueller's probe. Flynn again admitted that he he lied to FBI investigators about his conversations with Russian officials. But that filing also fails to explain why he lied about what would otherwise not likely have been illegal at all. They had been elected. uh, Donald Trump had been elected president. 
Flynn was uh, set to be his national security advisor. There was really nothing wrong with talking to someone, in this case, the the U.S. ambassador uh, from Russia. So the mystery of why Flynn and the rest of Team Trump kept covering up their contacts with Russia, with, you know, people affiliated with Russia, that continues to be perhaps the largest uh, central mystery in this entire affair. But as to Cohn and the hush money payoffs made to a porn star and a Playboy model at Trump's direction, if the guy who acted on Trump's direction to violate campaign finance laws to hide sexual affairs with two women, but who cooperated substantially, if not fully, with federal prosecutors, if he is getting three years in jail and has to cough up $2 million, imagine what the guy who actually directed that criminal conspiracy could get at this point. That guy, of course, being Donald Trump. In a court filing last week, the prosecutors left no doubt that they believe that Cohn arranged the hush money payments at Trump's direction, saying that the maneuver was part of an effort to, quote, influence the election from the shadows. Cohen, who once boasted that he would take a bullet for Trump, told the judges before the sentence came down that, quote, it was my own weakness and blind loyalty to this man that led me to choose a path of darkness over light. Time and again, I thought it was my duty to cover up his dirty deeds rather than listen to my voice. Cohen got choked up several times near the end of his remarks to the judge. He had pleaded guilty back in August to evading one and a half million dollars in taxes related to his personal businesses. In the uh, part of the case with greater political repercussions, he also admitted breaking campaign finance laws in arranging payments in the waning days of the 2016 election to porn star Stormy Daniels and Playboy model Karen McDougal last month. Cohn also pleaded guilty to lying to Congress by concealing that he was negotiating a proposal to build a Trump skyscraper in Moscow deep into the presidential campaign season. He said he lied out of devotion to Trump, who had insisted repeatedly during the campaign and afterward that he had no business ties whatsoever to Russia. Beyond the guilty pleas, it is unclear exactly what Cohn told prosecutors, and it remains to be seen how much damage Cohn's cooperation will do to Trump. Cohn said in court that he will continue cooperating with federal investigators. And again, we still don't know what is at the heart of the uh, of the Russia related allegations here and why it is that everyone lies about them. I mean, including, by the way, the recent admission that we now know that uh, Trump was still attempting to work out a, a deal with the Russia in some fashion for a Trump Tower in Moscow much, much later into the uh, into the election, into the campaign than we knew. That's not in and of itself illegal. Now, yes, they would have to change the sanctions against Russia in order for that uh, for that deal to move forward. But in and of itself, I don't believe that it is illegal. So it's still very strange. There's still a whole lot about this that we don't know in regard to Russia and why everybody kept lying about it and continues lying about it. 
But for now, setting the Russia thing aside, back to the uh, campaign finance fraud scandal here. Trump has denied any sexual relationship with the uh, with the two women in question and argued on Twitter earlier this week in in a tweet that misspelled smoking gun twice, not just once, but twice called smocking gun. So (laughs) it wasn't a typo because he did it twice. He just doesn't know how to spell smoking, apparently. So he said in uh, in those uh, tweets that the payments to the women were, quote, a simple private transaction, not a campaign contribution and that if it was a prohibited country and that if it was in fact a prohibited contribution Trump said Cohen is the one not him who should be held responsible for it his tweet said lawyers liability if he made a mistake not me he added uh, Cohen is just trying to get his sentence reduced witch hunt And he just completely waves away like it never happened that he used to claim that none of this had happened. That none of it had happened. But now he still says, by the way, that it it, I I think he says that it didn't happen. But even though it didn't happen, that wouldn't stop them from going out and claim that it happened. Therefore, he had to pay them this money. Now, he didn't uh, he paid one hundred and thirty thousand dollars to Stormy Daniels. But it was the National Enquirer who paid one hundred and fifty thousand dollars to Karen McDougal to keep her quiet. So uh, the sentencing today with Michael, uh, with Michael Cohen, that is not all. Separately, as The Washington Post notes uh, late today, New York prosecutors, again, this is not Robert Mueller, but this is the special, uh, uh, this is the federal prosecutors in the um, New York Southern District. Southern District, right? They announced on Wednesday, that they had struck a non-prosecution agreement with AMI. That is the company that publishes the National Enquirer. And that they would not be prosecuting AMI for its role in squelching stories of women, according to The Washington Post, women who said they had relationships with Trump. AMI paid $150,000 to one of the women before the 2016 election. As part of the agreement, AMI admitted it made the payment principally, quote, in concert with Trump's campaign to, quote, suppress the women's story so as to prevent it from influencing the election, unquote. That, according to a statement from the Southern District of New York Prosecutor's Office. So, yes, National Enquirer's publisher and longtime Trump buddy David Pecker is now officially cooperating with federal prosecutors in their case against Donald Trump. As Paul Waldman and Greg Sargent explain at the Post, This delivers a serious blow to one of Trump's primary arguments in his own defense that the payoffs were merely a, quote, private transaction. That they weren't had nothing to do with the campaign. This was a private transaction. He can give money to whoever he wants. But as Waldman and Sargent note, after all, uh, pretty much everyone in this caper, first Cohen and now the company that killed the stories in the question, has now publicly admitted that the payments were for the precise purpose of helping Trump win the election. In other words, for a public, not a private, a public purpose. It wasn't a private transaction. These were public transactions. This is precisely what makes the whole arrangement criminal. 
They note, because these payments were about getting Trump elected, therefore they were campaign contributions, which means they're limited and must be disclosed by law. They were not disclosed. They note pretty much the only person who has not yet admitted that this was their purpose is Donald Trump himself. So, Trump, as I said, is cooked. Even without all of the potential Russia stuff and the obstruction of justice stuff that could still come down the road, any other president with just this, with just the payoffs to women right before the election, women with whom he was having an affair, I mean, uh, as far as we know, Donald, uh, uh, Bill Clinton, I'm sorry, did not pay off any of the women with whom he was alleged to have had affairs. Arguably, you could say that was a private matter. But here, if he paid money to affect an election, that's a different story. And any other president with just that on his record at this point, it seems to me, would likely have resigned in disgrace by now. Oh, indeed. But, of course, uh, surrounding all of this uh, for Cohn, for Flynn, for Trump's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, who agreed to cooperate with prosecutors but then didn't and instead shared what he learned about the probe, apparently with Trump and his team, reportedly. Uh, and, of course, for Trump and his family and any other goons caught up in all of this, there is always the possibility of a presidential pardon. And that Trump could uh, grant with a stroke of his pen, perhaps, even though it's it's never been uh, done or tested in court, he could perhaps even pardon himself in all of these matters. He could get all of these people off the federal hook with a stroke of his pardon pen at virtually any time. And, of course, uh, he could remain shielded from federal criminal prosecution under the similarly untested uh, argument, the premise that a sitting president cannot be indicted while in office. So, yes, while it seems like he's cooked, there are a few ways that he could skate from all of this. Uh, that, however, his pardon power and his power to theoretically not be indicted as president, none of that shields him or his businesses or his business associates or his family from a criminal prosecution by a state prosecutor. And today we learn that the one who has just been elected to that role in the state of New York is gunning for all of the above. New York Attorney General-elect Letitia James says that she plans to launch sweeping investigations into President Donald Trump, his family, and, quote, anyone in his circle who may have violated the law once she settles into her new job next month. We will use every area of the law to investigate President Trump and his business transactions and that of his family as well. James told NBC News in her first extensive interview since she was elected last month. Some of the probes that she intends to pursue with regard to the president, his businesses and his family members include any potential illegalities involving Trump's real estate holdings in New York. Uh, yeah, I'm sure there's no dirty business there. <laughs> this uh, was actually highlighted uh, by a New York Times investigation published in October into the president's finances, which detailed all kinds of dirty businesses 
and blatant tax avoidance schemes on tens of millions of dollars. Yeah, that epic New York Times investigation into so much tax fraud and evasion from the Trump family, the Trump organization, the Trump foundation, all of that. Feels like it was about 16 years ago. It just and it just disappeared. Right. It was a huge article. It just disappeared. Well, it didn't dis- uh, disappear as far as the uh, New York AG elect is concerned. She's also going to look into the June 2016 Trump Tower meeting with a Russian uh, with a Russian official, which the feds are also investigating. But should Trump pardon himself or those involved in it? If any criminal action took place, a state prosecutor in the state where the meeting took place could also pursue that very same matter. She promises to examine government subsidies that Trump has received, which were also the subject of that Times uh, investigative piece. Whether he is in violation of the emoluments clause in the U.S. Constitution through his New York businesses. There are already several uh, cases challenging that in, I think, Maryland and D.C., as I recall. So add New York to the potential list. She will continue to probe the Trump Foundation, which is already facing legal charges from the current outgoing New York attorney general, just in case you thought that the new one had any intentions, uh, the new one that's coming in, that she had any intentions of letting that go. Clearly, she doesn't. James said, we want to investigate anyone in his orbit who has, in fact, violated the law. She campaigned on passing a bill to change New York's double jeopardy laws with an eye on possible pardons coming out of the uh, coming out of the White House. She wants to be able to pursue state charges against anyone that the president ends up pardoning in uh, federal charges, because under current New York law, she might not be able to do that. So she's hoping that within the first 100 days that this bill to uh, do away with that double jeopardy clause in New York, that that bill will be passed. She says it is a priority because I have concerns with respect to the possibility that this administration might pardon some individuals who might face some criminal charges. But I do not want to let them be immune from state charges. She's enlisting um, apparently reportedly here some heavy hitters. As part of her transition here to uh, help her identify important hires for her office with an eye on bringing experts in uh, who can look at Trump related investigations. Of course, New York is also the home to uh, the Trump Organization, where the presidential campaign was headquartered and his reelection campaign currently headquartered as well. It's where a number of the key events took place that Mueller is looking at. So all of this falls within James's jurisdiction. See why I'm starting to say this guy looks like he may be cooked. She's coming in uh, very shortly in just a matter of weeks, and uh, she's going to continue, as I said, with the uh, Trump Foundation investigation, which has uh, been accused of engaging in illegal political coordination with the Trump campaign, with self-dealing, with violating legal ethics. So uh, NBC notes the White House, Trump Organization and attorney representing the company and Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani did not respond to requests for comments. Gee, I wonder why. Exactly. They, they must be busy. So for her part, by the way, uh, James thinks that uh, Mueller is doing an excellent job. She says she thinks he's closing in on this president and that his days are going to be coming to an end shortly. We'll see. 
You know what else is coming to an end shortly? This year's Affordable Care Act open enrollment period. (laughs) I see what you did there. See what I did there? (laughs) We will talk about that and why drop-offs in uh, 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 sign-offs, drop-offs in sign-ups are down this year and what the Democrats plan to do to protect Obamacare once they take majority control of the U.S. House in January. That's with Alice Olstein next. And then also coming to an end shortly, I suspect is the mystery of whether or not there will be a new election called in North Carolina's 9th U.S. House District amid the ongoing GOP election fraud scandal there. Some new new details now out on that today also suggest there is only one way that that question, that mystery, can go. All of that is still ahead on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Aren't you glad you came? Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Late last month, in an article headlined, Trump may finally be undermining Obamacare, Politico's Paul Demko reported that there has been a steep drop in Obamacare insurance numbers halfway through the sign-up season for 2019, raising concerns that the Trump administration's controversial policy changes are undermining the marketplaces. The 9.2% drop to roughly 100,000 signups per day has surprised some close observers of the Obamacare markets who expected the number of customers to remain fairly stable even after Republicans eliminated the unpopular individual mandate penalties for being uninsured. Premium hikes were fairly low in most states for 2019, and many parts of the country saw an increase in consumer choice as more health plans participated in what they now see as a more profitable, stabilizing market. They note that a slow start, however, doesn't necessarily mean a slow end to the six-week season. As Demco cautioned at the time, a flood of signups could arrive as the deadline uh, prods the inevitable procrastinators to act, but Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare backers, are concerned. Enrollment nationwide peaked in 2016 at 12.7 million signups, according to Kaiser, and has ticked down each year since then, with 11.8 million signups for the current year, at least as of the end of November. The Trump administration's shortened period for ACA open enrollment nears its end this weekend on Saturday. 
December 15, to be specific. That's the last chance for Americans to sign up or change plans for 2019 on the healthcare.gov site, which serves some 39 states which opted not to create their own state-run exchanges. But last week, with the uh, with that December 15 deadline quickly coming, an update from the Federal Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which oversees ACA signups, found healthcare.gov signups were down by almost 10 percent compared to last year, with just 3.2 million people enrolled through healthcare.gov this year versus 3.6 million. At this same point last year, barring a major turnaround in the final few days of open enrollment, Obamacare signups are on pace to be the lowest since 2013 and 2014, the first year of the exchanges when the enrollment period was at least twice as long as it is now under the Trump administration's new restrictions. The reasons for the slowdown, however, are many. And all of them are not necessarily bad news for the program. Insurance experts say it's unlikely that any one major cause is behind the enrollment dip compared with last year's period. Instead, it's likely a confluence of headwinds, they say. At the same time, following the blue tsunami that swamped the midterm polls and elected at least 40 new Democrats to the U.S. House while leaving a Republican majority in the U.S. Senate, the question is now, what, if anything, can Democrats do to protect Obamacare from further degradation by Republicans and the Trump administration? As Alice Olstein and Adam Sankrin observe at Politico uh, recently, House Democrats who swept back into power on the promise to protect people with pre-existing conditions face tough legal and political choices as they try to make good on that vow. Those promises galvanized millions of voters, they write. But now, like the Republicans previously elected on promises to repeal and replace Obamacare, Democrats face the formidable challenge of turning campaign rhetoric into reality. So what has led to the drop-off in enrollments this year, and what exactly can a Democratic majority in the House, if not the Senate or control of the White House, what can they actually do to protect the landmark health care law that has ensured tens of millions of Americans since its passage under Democratic majorities in the House and Senate during the Obama administration? Let's ask Alice. Alice Olstein, formerly at Talking Points Memo, now a reporter at Politico, where she covers national politics, Congress, the administration, and all the dysfunctional hell that comes along with it these days. Joins us once again here on the broadcast, Alice Olsten. Great to have you back. Thanks so much. You report that the uh, slowdown in the ACA signups this year does not appear to be due to any one reason, but rather a combination of many, not all of them even bad news. But I know with the midterm elections this year and the Republicans not actively trying to kill Obamacare, at least in Congress, there has been little discussion at all, uh, that the open enrollment period is even going on and that the deadline is coming up uh, Saturday, December 15. What's the main cause that you chalk up this downturn uh, to based on your reporting? Well, like you said, um, there's so many factors and so many changes that happened at once that it's impossible to attribute this percent of the drop-off to this factor, like the repeal of the individual mandate. People mm -hmm. don't 
have to buy insurance if they want to avoid a penalty, um, and the new deadline, and the lack of information, and the lack of discussion in the news. But I think we're seeing some polling that just the widespread um, ignorance and misinformation about open enrollment is, is just a key, key contributor. There was a Kaiser poll recently that found that three-quarters of Americans are, do not know when the deadline is. Yep. Uh, it's, it's this Saturday, as we said. Yep. Um, and nearly one-third of people polled said they'd seen no information about how to sign up. Um, and so under the Obama administration, the government invested uh, $100 million in um, the outreach budget to put on TV ads and social media campaigns and in-person enrollment events to really gin up um, attention and mm-hmm. get people to sign up. And the Trump administration cut that outreach budget by 90% um, and cut the enrollment assistance budget by more than half. So I think we're seeing the effect of this. And I um Lawmakers in Congress are, of course, very split on <laughs> what, where to point the finger mm-hmm. for this. And so you're seeing Democrats talking about the Trump administration's uh, policies, what they call sabotage of open enrollment, cutting the outreach budget, cutting the length of open enrollment, cutting the enrollment assistance. And you're seeing Republicans say, oh, no, it's just because plans are too expensive, people can't afford them. That's why people aren't signing up. Well, they certainly they went up a lot more last year than they did this year when they seemed to be sort of uh, stabilized. They increased as uh, health care costs always do, it seems, but not the kind of big bump in the uh, increase in premiums that we saw last year. And so that alone, despite what the Republicans say, that couldn't explain it. It does seem to be. And, and I got to say, Alice, I feel bad. I feel terrible. Uh, you and I, we, we may have talked uh, two or three times before and during the open enrollment period last year. I haven't talked about it at all on this show. There's been a lot of year. other things going on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the fact that the midterm election came just days after open enrollment started. Yeah. Completely sucked a lot of attention away from this, and we didn't have that last year, obviously. And, you know, now we're staring down a government shutdown. So, yeah. really, I mean, it's it's uh, in part due to there being just so much else drowning it out. But yeah. I think another key piece of data showing that it's not high prices that are deterring people mm-hmm. um, is that when you look at the enrollment, drop-off is about 10%. But if you look at the drop-off of who's even coming to healthcare.gov to even check out what their options are, that's dropped off by a lot more, almost Mm. double. So people aren't even coming in the first place to see what to shop around, to look at different plans. And so I think that is an indication that it's more the lack of awareness than the cost. And uh, if you compare it to uh, your colleague uh, Paul Demko at Politico notes that the states who are running their own exchanges, so not the healthcare.gov numbers, but um, uh, covered California out here, uh, out in New York, where they run their own exchange, they are seeing no similar dip. For example, late last month, he reports enrollment in New York State is trending about 10 percent ahead of last year's numbers, and those numbers come despite an 8.6% rise in average individual uh, insurance prices. That also uh, undermines the Republican claim that, uh, oh, it's, oh, it's because of the rise in, in health care. Yes, and also um, I think another claim that's worth 
putting a little skeptical lens on mm-hmm. is the claim that fewer people are signing up because the economy is doing so well and unemployment is down and all of these people must have gotten nice jobs with health insurance and that's why they're not signing up on the exchanges. I'm sure that accounts for some of it, but I think the drop-off is so large that it's worth questioning mm. just how many people are in that situation, particularly because some of the highest job growth we've seen is in some of these you know, gig economy, part-time, uh, mm. contract jobs that do not offer health insurance. There is uh, another, let's say, not terrible reason uh, potentially for this, which is the expansion of Medicaid in a number of states, like uh, in Virginia. There has been more than 117,000 signups for the state's long overdue Medicaid expansion this year following the uh, blue wave in Virginia last year in their uh, off-term elections. Uh, People signing up for Medicaid, are they not included in the CMSHealthCare.gov numbers? And and could that be eating into uh, new enrollments this year? Well, they they are no longer on private insurance. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yes. Um, And... Right, and we will see that happen in Maine later this year, again, because of the election results. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I think that the drop-off we're seeing is so large that n- none of these things by themselves can really account for it. With a drop-off uh, this large, uh, has any of this led to the talk that we had heard a lot in previous years of the dreaded so-called death spiral that would supposedly occur if there are not enough sign-ups, leading companies to pull out of the exchanges, drive up prices, and ultimately kill the ACA marketplace viability entirely? Is that a concern uh, among uh, providers now? It's really not. I mean, we, like you said, have seen the market stabilize a lot. Insurers are profiting a great deal. Um, and really, the drop-off, while it is significant, it is not the death spiral that was feared a few years ago because um, you're still seeing millions of people sign up and you're seeing people, you know, getting mm-hmm. getting subsidies and you're seeing insurers even entering new markets that they weren't in before so you have more choices um so yes we're we're, we're not seeing the the death spiral that was predicted you and adam sankren uh, over at politico recently pressed democrats on what they now plan to do to try and protect obamacare as they uh, as they take their big majority in the U.S. House this year. There's only so much, of course, they can do while controlling just one chamber of con- uh, of, uh, of Congress. But the, the, the big debate now appears to be on where to focus limited resources, whether it's to defend against this ongoing lawsuit against Obamacare uh, filed by uh, Texas and several other Republican states or otherwise pass legislation to ensure uh, the uh, program's current protection for people with pre-existing conditions? Are those, the, are those essentially the two options that Democrats are trying to figure out how to, how to, uh, where to move? Well, I think there's a lot of focus on what the House can do on its own without uh, having to ask the Republican Senate to collaborate, mm-hmm. given the un- unlikelihood of that. Um, so there are real serious talks about intervening in the lawsuit that is seeking to strike down the Affordable Care Act. And that is both important symbolically to show, hey, we're, we're going to get in court and fight for your health care. But I, it's also important in a substantive way, because this entire lawsuit hinges on 
what did Congress intend? Did Congress intend the Affordable Care Act to survive without the individual mandate? And the House's top counsel can go argue, yes, we did. We debated repealing the entire thing many, Mm -hmm. many, many times and chose not to. So we clearly intended to just get rid of the individual mandate and keep the rest. So that, that, is that lawsuit, just to mm-hmm. clarify, that that lawsuit is it is essentially saying that because the uh, individual mandate is now dead, then mm-hmm. you have to kill the rest of the Affordable Care Act as well. Is that yes. essentially the argument? Yes, and this is a lawsuit brought by a group of Republican attorneys general mm-hmm. arguing in federal court, and the Trump administration sided with them in part and decided not to defend a law that's still on the books, which is highly unusual. Um, and But they're not arguing for the entire Affordable Care Act to be struck down. They're just arguing for some of the patient protections, like for pre-existing conditions, mm-hmm. to be struck down. Mm. So that ruling could be handed down at any moment, although Mm. it will probably spend months, if not years, working its way up through the court. Who's who's defending it now, if not the the, the Democrats are talking about uh, somehow spending money? And I don't even know, do they have the right uh, in in, uh, Congress, in the House, Mm to to hire someone to defend it? Who's defending it now? Uh, Well, currently it is Democratic Attorneys General defending it now, led Mm -hmm. by California. And they are the main folks defending in the lawsuit. And this would authorize the House counsel. So someone, you know, you don't have to hire someone. They have a whole office already there okay. um, to argue, yeah, the House's position on this. So that's something they could do. They don't even have to pass a formal bill, just a resolution. So that's, oh. that's sort of a, a low-hanging fruit. The other thing the House can do on its own is conduct oversight. So haul Trump administration and HHS folks to Capitol Hill and grill them on some of these key health care decisions. And we've been writing a lot about what, what are sort of the top things they, they hope to find out through that. Democrats ran very hard across the country in the midterms on protections for pre-existing conditions. They put a lot of Republicans on the defensive on that score. Even the White House had to claim that they, not the Democrats, would protect coverage for pre-existing conditions. So, great. Isn't this a a great chance uh, to call their bluff, to uh, essentially push for the uh, both push for the campaign promised by Democrats and force the GOP hand on this matter on this matter in advance of of 2020, even if they can't pass it in uh, in both chambers, wouldn't they be wise to to push that and call Republicans on the carpet on this issue? Well, there are a lot of there's a lot of desire to do that, of course. Um, but there are a lot of potential pitfalls and things that um, Democratic lawmakers are worried about in 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 pursuing those goals. So, one, the lawsuit and a ruling from a judge is just a giant unknown looming mm-hmm. over all of this. We have no idea what the judge is going to do, if the judge is going to strike down the entire Affordable Care Act, just part of it, if he's going to stay the impact of the ruling um, until an appeals court weighs in. We just have no idea. And so... For instance, it would be pretty risky for the House to pass like a freestanding protect pre-existing conditions bill, and then so they pass it, mm-hmm. and it's a it's hard for Republicans to vote against that. Obviously, just that by mm-hmm. itself. But what if the judge strikes down more than just pre-existing conditions? Then you're abandoning those other pieces of the Affordable Care Act, leaving them without any protection. Mm. It also, if a ruling hasn't come down yet, or if the judge you know, stays the impact or 
um, you know, doesn't, doesn't immediately strike these things down, passing a pre-existing conditions bill could send a really confusing message because pre-existing conditions are already protected under the Affordable Care Act. So mm. to vote to protect them sort of undermines the idea that, hey, this law is the law of the land and we're going to stand by it. Um, so th- there's, there's just a lot of unknowns and um, a lot of concern, and that's why inter- there are legal experts who we've quoted in our reporting mm-hmm. who say focusing on, on the lawsuit and fighting that in court is the best way to protect pre-existing conditions, although it doesn't have the uh, political advantage of putting Republicans in the hot seat. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, in, in other words, if they do uh, adopt or pass a bill that, that, set, that protects pre-existing conditions, that would also give the, uh, the courts... Uh, a little bit more ease to say, okay, well, we can uh, we can find in favor of the Republicans, kill the uh, Affordable Care Act's protection of pre-existing conditions because, oh, right. look, there's this other law where they're still protected. Right. Very interesting. So have Democrats now at this point coalesced around any particular strategy as they move towards January? Or is it uh, or the Dems, uh, as the media like to say, uh, in disarray as they uh, try to figure out how to move in January at this point? Well, like I said, whatever comes out of the court will dictate a lot of their health care agenda. But there are definite plans to use oversight aggressively to, for instance, force the administration to say why they decided not to defend the Affordable Care Act in court, uh, or force the administration to hand over documents for why they um, moved to implement all of these Medicaid work requirements that are, that are causing a lot of people to lose their insurance. So mm-hmm. th- there's a lot they can do on oversight. And like I said, Um, there is a lot of support for intervening in the lawsuit. Beyond that, there's support for undoing some of the open enrollment cuts and cutbacks that Mm -hmm. that have happened, although that is more about the House sort of showing what it's for because those things are not likely to make it through the Republican Senate. Mm. So it's uh, a lot of oversight and... um, Well, I, I guess we just have to wait to see what happens uh, at this point with that uh, with that case. But even if the worst happens in that case, it will still be appealed. It will still take a while before we have any conclusion uh, as to whether Obamacare, the, the key elements, will be struck down by that cra- kind of crazy lawsuit. Yes, and it's important to note that even folks who have been involved in um, challenging the Affordable Care Act in in court in previous years, even all the way up to the Supreme Court, even they say that this case is frivolous and ridiculous and <laughs> should be thrown out. So um, we don't know. Uh, the judge in Texas that is hearing it right now and could make a decision at any moment, he has been vocally hostile to the Affordable Care Act in the past, but that doesn't mean this will fly at higher courts. So, okay, so we can rest a little bit easier that uh, Obamacare is not going away anytime uh, soon, and particularly with the uh, Democrats now controlling the House. But I guess we can't rest. I wonder if we'll ever be able to rest easy. Uh, You know, if they're still fighting Medicare and Medicaid decades later, I suspect the the fight against uh, the ACA is also going to continue for decades whether we like it or not. Well, whether we like it or not, Alice Olstein will hopefully be there to cover it. Uh, Alice Olstein, uh, formerly at Talking Points Memo, now at Politico.com, where you can find her work. You can also find her on the Twitters at Alice Olstein. 
Great checking in with you, Alice. Uh, I uh, I suspect we'll be talking again soon once this uh, once this court case comes down. <laughs> sure, anytime. Thanks, Alice. Once again, a reminder, since I have been deficient in that regard, the open enrollment period closes on the federalhealthcare.gov exchange on Saturday, December 15th. Okay, new news out of the GOP election fraud scandal in North Carolina, and it does not look good for the GOP. Not by a long shot. That story is next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. The North Carolina Republican Party said on Tuesday, this is the North Carolina Republican Party, said that a new election should be held in North Carolina's 9th Congressional District if a new allegation regarding the leak of early voting results before Election Day before the November 6th election day is proven. The results of the race between Republican Mark Harris and Democrat Democrity have already been held up over allegations of GOP election fraud against a contractor for one of Harris's campaign consultants. But as we reported on yesterday's broadcast, the state Democratic Party has highlighted another incident in the inquiry into the U.S. House race releasing a signed affidavit from a Bladen County, North Carolina poll worker alleging that the results of early votes were tabulated and improperly shared before the election. That's a violation of the law. North Carolina Republican Party Chair Robin Hayes released a statement saying that if these allegations were true, they alone would be cause to hold a new election. In his uh, statement, and you may want to sit down or hold on to something for this, Desi. Okay. Uh, Hayes said in the statement, quote, This action by election officials would be a fundamental violation of the sense of fair play, honesty, and integrity that the Republican Party stands for. <laughs> okay. Yes, that's what Has he, he met the Republican that's Party? That's what he actually said, yeah. Um He's, uh, the uh, the people involved in this must be held accountable, he said in the statement. And uh, should it be true, this fact alone would require a new election. That coming from a statement from the North Carolina Republican Party. And now we know that it is, in fact, true. We know, in fact, that they did print out the uh, they did tabulate the early vote totals in uh, Bladen County. 
I guess the question is whether or not that information was shared outside of uh, with anyone else other than, you know, election workers. Dallas Woodhouse, the executive director of the state Republican Party, said that it was likely, in fact, that early votes were leaked. He said, we're almost sure those early votes were leaked out. Well, how is he how is he so sure about that, Mr. Yeah. Woodhouse? Hmm. Uh, he told Politico, we're almost sure the early vote totals were leaked. That's where we are. The state elections board has got to do whatever it does. So the state GOP is now all but conceding that a new election at a minimum is required here. But a new primary election may be needed as well as a new general election, since the absentee ballot fraud scheme at the heart of this matter also appears to have been carried out by Mark Harris's uh, contractor during the GOP primary that unseated the incumbent Republican Robert Pittenger as well. So not just a new election. Uh, it seems like a new primary election is called for really at a minimum. But moreover, the state election board could also decide to simply toss out the uh, the absentee ballots in question here from uh, Bladen County uh, and award the election if they want to the Democrat, Dan McCready. So at this point, a new election with the same candidates is looking like the best case scenario for Republicans it seems to me uh, at this point in a press conference Tuesday afternoon, Woodhouse, again, the executive director of the GOP in the state, echoed the call for a new election to be held if the allegations about early vote totals being leaked, if that proved to be true, and said that the state board of elections needed to take over any special election. He also defended the Republican Mark Harris here. Woodhouse said, we have seen nothing that makes us think Mark Harris participated or would condone this behavior. We believe it is against his character. Also, uh, it would be a fundamental violation of the sense of fair play, honesty and integrity that the Republican Party stands for. <laughs> uh, Dallas, uh, he, this is the uh, the character uh, McCray Dallas, um, the uh, independent contractor who was hired by the Harris campaign to do their absentee ballot operation in um, in Bladen County. North Carolina said uh, Dallas uh, reportedly oversaw this operation that collected absentee ballots from voters before submitting them or potentially not submitting them. We don't know. Or allegedly changing them before submitting them, because uh, we've got several affidavits saying that he was uh, his uh, people collected ballots that were not uh, where the envelope was not sealed and where the voter had not signed it, all of which is against the law in the state collecting the ballots is against the law and certainly changing them and so forth is against the law and certainly withholding them from being submitted is obviously against the law uh, that oct uh, that activity also uh, took place in Bladen County, the same place where these early results were printed out and maybe leaked. And it's also where the local sheriff, who was also up for election and reportedly won, where that local sheriff, a guy by the name of Jim McVicker, also paid this Dallas guy thousands of dollars for an absentee ballot campaign. But wait, there is more. 
McCray Dallas, whose get-out-the-vote activities are at the center of the election fraud scandal in North Carolina, told a political campaign volunteer that he was holding on to 800 absentee ballots, according to a new affidavit obtained by NBC News. In the signed statement, Kenneth Simmons said that he met Dallas at a Republican Party meeting in the town of Dublin, which is in Bladen County. Simmons wrote that he and his wife saw Dallas with a large number of absentee ballots in, quote, in his possession. That's already illegal right there in North Carolina. Simmons stated that he asked Dallas why he had so many ballots, and Dallas responded that he was holding on to more than 800 of them, more than 800 of them. Simmons wrote that, remember, by the way, Harris reportedly won this election by just 905 votes. Simmons wrote that, uh, quote, he asked him why he had not turned them in. And Dallas replied, quote, you don't do that until the last day because the opposition would know how many votes they had to make up. Simmons said, my concern was that these ballots were not going to be turned in at all. And who knows if they were? Simmons signed the affidavit uh, Wednesday, December 11, and confirmed the account to NBC News when he was reached by phone. The Republican nominee in the 9th District, Mark Harris, won by more than 60 percent of Bladen County's mail-in ballots, which is a huge margin considering just 19 percent of accepted mail-in ballots actually belong to registered Republicans. We also previously detailed an unusually huge portion of absentee ballot requests by Democrats that reportedly never made it back to the county for some reason. Um, in their own uh, conference uh, in rally on Tuesday, the leader of the Democratic Party in the state, Wayne Goodman, asked why Harris even decided to hire Dallas. He said McCray Dallas has a long history of conducting absentee ballot fraud. Uh, that has uh, that was well documented. Yet Mark Harris still hired him, and now Harris refuses to answer several questions about their relationship. The plot thickens. Yes, it does. Uh, so to review very quickly what we've learned today on today's broadcast: Trump is probably cooked. Obamacare probably isn't, at least yet. And at a minimum, the 2018 midterm elections are not over, as there will almost certainly now be a new election of some sort in North Carolina's 9th Congressional District. All of those stories, no doubt, continue on our next thrilling broadcast tomorrow, for which I hope you will join me and my producer, Desi Doyen. Thank you, Des. My thanks also to Alice Olstein of Politico and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And find, follow, and share everything that we do here uh, on the Facebooks and the Twitters. You can find me there. I am the Brad Blog. My thanks to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to make this show possible at all. Thank you. All right, that's it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.